0: So the five Ps of compartment syndrome. We're looking at pain, pallor, paresthesia, paralysis, and pulselessness. So that pulselessness, you know, it's your last um the last symptom. So hopefully we catch at the beginning of the pain and the pallor and hopefully we're able to prevent it from getting to that point where the patient may not have a pulse, which means that there is like a severe compromise of circulation and um and nerves, so a complete neurovascular um, deficit. Okay, so the pain, it's gonna be pain beyond um, what the injury should be at that point. So again, pain should improve; it shouldn't get worse. The pallor is that paleness that you'll see distal to the um, to the injury, which means there's not enough blood flow going to it. Um, paresthesia, the numbness and tingling, paralysis means they can't move it, and pulseness without um, a pulse at that point. Your rice, know when we're using it, um, and when things would change. So rice is your rest. So in that initial period, we want the patient to rest to kind of let that injury kind of recuperate. And then after those first um, 24 to 72 hours, we then we would start moving the injured the injured area um, ice 24 to 48 hours, and then after that, we would switch over to warm compression we want that um compression bandage in order to give it some support again we wrap distal so farthest away to closest in order to help with that swelling and that edema that's um going to cause more pain and then elevation above the level of the heart again to also help with that edema and that swelling because the more swelling the more pain um We talked about this one, 24 to 48 hours, and then we switch over to heat. And then um, another one of the complications of a fracture of that kind of injury would be fat emboli. So we said that the fat emboli are those little fat globules that get released from the the bone marrow, usually of the long bones, like the femur, the humerus, the pelvis, um, and they get released into the circulation. If they happen to end up in the lung, then we have... um, Kind of signs and symptoms similar to a pulmonary embolism. So early on, the patient's going to start to get hypoxic. There's going to be a decrease in oxygen saturation. The patient may become anxious and restless because they're like in need of this oxygen. So their body is naturally going to respond by raising the heart rate, raising the respiration. If we don't catch it early on, then it's going to progress. So the patient's going to become more hypoxic. So there's going to be cyanosis because that oxygen is down. the patient's going to become more apprehensive because they're lacking that oxygenation they may complain of chest pain and then um further into it they start to complain that there's a headache or like altered mental status again there's not enough perfusion there's not enough oxygen going to that brain so the patient's going to become um with altered mental status i have a question about that for um what's the difference between the fat emboli and the um like the fat embolism and the pulmonary embolism so pulmonary embolism is a clot it's an actual blood clot that got released so let's say you have a DVT, a deep vein thrombosis one little clot broke off and it ended Uh up in the lung and that would be a pulmonary embolism the fat embolism has signs and symptoms similar to it but it's not a blood clot it's an actual fat um like fat uh, cells that got released and it doesn't it doesn't um, necessarily come from like the cap where the like where the DVT is or it can um no so the fat embolism is because there's a crush into the bone and the bone marrow that has some fat cells in it break off oh, okay. and they get released that's why it most often happens with long bones such as like the humerus because the longer bone has more bone marrow so the minute that crushed or it breaks, it can release. Okay, but it can okay. also happen, for instance, when um, with like liposuction or like a hip replacement, um, anywhere we're really manipulating um, those fatty areas. And they can dislodge also, or no? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> and then your late sign of a fat embolism, which is very peculiar to fat embolism, is that petechiae. So you have like those little. Um, red marks, you'll see them in the conjunctiva, you'll see them in the axilla, in the chest wall, in the mouth, and that's pretty far into it. By this point, that patient will probably need full respiratory support. Um, Fiberglass casts for uh, a comparative plaster cast. Fiberglass is what you're often gonna see because it's lightweight, it dries really fast, Um, And it's more, um, it can last longer without getting damaged. um, And it can withstand some um, water droppings on it. Obviously not like a shower. um, But if you go out in the rain, it can get water without getting damaged. Versus the plaster casts, which are really heavy. They take forever to dry. um, And they usually don't um, use them anymore. Um, They usually reserve them for patients that have diabetes and may have ulcers that form. Um, But what you will normally see will be that fiberglass. Okay, when we're talking about traction, we said there's different types of traction. Um, and we use them for different reasons. It could be to reduce that pain and muscle spasms by stretching out the area or mobilizing um, the injury. Um, we may be reducing that fracture dislocation. So it's kind of as it pulls, it kind of sets it. Um, or if we're trying to maintain that space, if there's like a limb salvage where there is like maybe a bone um, tumor that was removed we want to keep the area open so when we go in <clears throat> and fix that area we keep the space um, of the joint and obviously um, because the goal is to mobilize, reduce pain and reduce our fracture um, patients we would know that it's working because they're going to be having less pain because that has been um, that area has been um, relieved now your traction weights we said we never remove them Okay, um only in a life with death situation, like if we have to do CPR, that would probably be the only time that we would just take them off. Um, but other than that, unless the doctor um deems that they need to be removed, we leave them be. Now it's important that they're both that depending on the type of traction, that those weights are hanging freely. Um if it's for instance like a skeletal traction where you have weights on the um, top of the bed and on the bottom. They need to be balanced so one can't be lower than the other because then it's not pulling as it should so it should be pulling evenly um, and they should always be off the ground and off the bed and never like swinging around so whether it's um skeletal traction or those external fixators that we talked about there's going to be pins um that are going into um, the skin and obviously, because they're foreign, there may be some redness that shows up, which is normal because obviously the body is um, identifying them as foreign. But that redness shouldn't expand. There should be no purulent drainage. Um, the patient shouldn't have a fever, because um, those would be um, signs and symptoms of infection. So, with that, obviously, we want to make sure that we are checking those pin sites minimum of two times a day. So morning, so at least the beginning and end of your shift. Um, in order to make sure um, that there is nothing that's changed during that time. Okay, now your venous thromboembolism. So now you have a clot that has formed due to the fact that the patient's immobile or may already have a pre-existing condition that's going to cause them to form these clots. Most often, the patient's going to have pain in that calf area. It may be swollen. It may be red. It may be warm to touch. There's always going to be a discrepancy in size between one side and the other. Now, that pain in dorsiflexion means that the one minute the patient puts the feet up, like the toes, towards the body, they're going to have a pain that um, shows up in that calf area. Again, this is a common place just because of gravity. However, those clots can form in other parts of the body, um, but most commonly it would happen there. So... In all of your ortho patients, we need to be doing um, neurovascular checks often in order to pick up on any of those signs and symptoms that could potentially lead to complications. So when we're doing our peripheral vascular assessments, we know that we're gonna be checking for color. It should be pink, it should be warm, the skin should be dry, it should be intact. That capillary refill, so when you press down and it blanches, which turns that white color, and you release it, it should turn back until it's pink color um, within three seconds or less. Anything above that means that there's something that's preventing that blood flow from returning the way that it should. And when we're checking peripheral pulses, always distal to the extremity, so farthest away from it. And we're checking both sides because they should be comparable um, bilaterally. And then um, edema. Obviously, we are expecting edema to occur, especially right after an injury. However, that edema should be improving. It shouldn't be out of proportion or shouldn't be getting worse once it started to get better. Okay, Um, we said whenever there's a dislocation um, or subluxation, we know that that joint came out of place, whether it was a partial or a complete so we know that because it came out of where it needed to be um, there could be a potential nerve damage if something got compressed or pulled um, because we said that sometimes it pulls because of the trauma there could be some sort of avulsion fracture where it takes literally that ligament takes the little piece of bone that it's attached to and if that's not enough circulation going to that joint, there could be some avascular necrosis. So that area is not going to get blood flow and the tissue is going to start to die and get necrotic. Okay, when we talked about compartment syndrome, we said increased pain. That's beyond what it should be or worsening. Um, swelling, that's getting worse. It's not improving. Um, and because all those little compartments, all those little spaces in the tissue, which normally are empty in order to allow for swelling um, to occur, now there's not enough. So it's like this excess. So it's like a balloon that you're inflating and it's just pulling and pulling and pulling. So the only way that you know, you're know you going to treat that is by relieving the pressure. So fasciotomy. So there's going to be a, a cut and literally open. So you're literally opening up like a valve and letting all that um, pressure out. We leave it open to air, um, and it heals by that secondary intention that we talked about. So inside out, but because it's open skin, um, we have to monitor for signs and symptoms of infection. Um, okay, we talked about this. So that increased pain and increased um, edema um, continues, and um, it will lead to that paresthesia and that numbness and um, if we allow it to, um, or don't address it soon enough or the patient doesn't seek medical attention soon enough, then it can lead to that pulse So now everything's compressed, nerves, veins, arteries, all that. So eventually the patient won't be able to wiggle the, extra- the digits, be, you know, distal to the, um, injury. Um, there may be the, um, pallor cause it's like the skin is like pulled and taut, um, so the obviously that's capillary refill will also be off. Okay, so patients that are going home or any education for these patients, obviously since we may not have them necessarily in the hospital, um, they may be going home. We need to educate them that they do need to report if they start to have numb disentangling, um, if they start to feel like there's a cool sensation, um, a change in the color of the skin, or if the pain has all of a sudden become either increase or it's unrelieved so maybe they took their pain medications but the pain is just not it's just not budging that's not normal that needs to be addressed now we talked about the fat embolized so those little fat globules got released um it most often happens with the fracture of lung bones pelvic and um if there's been like multiple fractures so like in car accidents or crush injuries where there's multiple fractures occurring all at once or with those intramedullary manipulation. Um, so if they're going into that bone marrow um, area, obviously you're manipulating that um, fatty tip um, area and it could be released. Um, you had asked, you know, it goes to the lungs, but it can also go to your kidneys. It can go to your retina. It can go to your brain. Um, and in that critical period, it's like the first 24 to 72 hours after that injury occurred. So that's usually when we're going to start to see these signs and symptoms if they're going to occur. Um, non-displaced fractures. So we said that it's non-displaced, so it didn't come out of its place. Okay, so it's usually you have like the transverse, which go across, the spiral, the green stick, which go down. Um, again, the bone in itself is still together. Um, there's just a slight break in one of the areas but it doesn't go completely through and it doesn't completely separate. Um, Warming up and stretching. Obviously, it's to um, make sure that the patient doesn't um, get injured. So it's like warming up, increasing that blood flow to those muscles, to those tendons, to those ligaments. So they're more likely to stretch and go with the movement versus being um, cold. So think about... um, something that's frozen that it really doesn't tug. Um, but if somethings like room temperature is more likely to be moldable and, and stretchable. Um, education as far as um, nutritional requirements after an injury, whether it's an orthopedic injury, whether it's surgery, whether it's a pressure ulcer, we want to make sure that we are um, providing increased protein, increased calories, um increased fluids for these patients cuz the body's going to need all these extra things in order to um deal with the extra um stress of the healing process, okay? And those like little old frail individuals um that may be like on uh, fluid intake restrictions, um we would probably have to offer supplementation like insurers or um jevity any of those to do a lot more with less because you're just not going to be able to have that much more intake um we said compression wraps distal to proximal so from farthest to closest to go against that gravity to pull towards the center of the body um that fluid Sprains we said occur with twisting motions, so common in your knees, your ankles, things that twist on themselves. Um, that's usually the cause of those um, sprains and it's pulling of the ligaments. And then strains, um, whenever you hear strain, you're going to think of muscles. So there's going to be an excessive stretching, so usually bigger uh, muscle groups like your back, um, your quads, your deltoids. Um, there's just a pull of the muscle and then there may occur some little tears and that's what's causing the pain. With amputations, we said one of the complications is phantom limb pain. So it's that um, the body's um, nerve, they get confused um, and they continue to fire to a place that no longer exists. So they haven't re- you know, realized that this part of the body is gone. Again, it's not relieved usually with normal um, Analgesics. So there's going to be um, alternatives to it. So there may be um, medications that um, are used for neuropathic pain, such as the gabapentin um, that is also used for fibromyalgia, um, calcitonin, um, all those alternatives that occur that work differently on like the transmission of nerves. We said it occurs after amputation. Again, it can occur, it doesn't always occur, but it is a risk um that we have to know about and educate patients if they start to have like this sharp burning throbbing pain um in that area where it used to be. Um, because it does um alter their lives and because it's not often relieved um with regular analgesics, it can um affect their entire um their entire life. Osteoporosis, we said, was the bone um, loses its density. Um, we said osteopenia, it's kind of it's starting to lose it, but it's not quite there yet. And then osteoporosis is anything um, more than negative 2.5. Um, and the gold standard of diagnose, um, diagnosis is this DEXA. So basically, it's looking at how the bones are absorbing, um, and that tells us the density of them. So in those initial, um, maybe those osteopenic patients or maybe somebody that's at high risk for osteoporosis, we wanna make sure that we are educating them in ways that they can supplement or kind of help counteract that. Um, so increasing calcium intake, whether it's food, whether it's supplementation, but well, we know that calcium needs vitamin D in order to bind. So in addition to those calcium, um, increased calcium intake, they also have to increase their vitamin D. Again, whether it's supplementation or whether it's natural with sunlight, there needs to be that vitamin D intake as well. Regular physical activity um, with weight-bearing exercises. So osteoporosis has a risk factor in patients that have a sedentary lifestyle um, and in those thin, frail individuals. So those weight-bearing exercises are strengthening um, the muscles and in turn, they're helping that calcium bind into the bone. And then we said that there's certain uh, medical conditions that kind of contribute to osteoporosis because whether of the actual condition or the medications that the patient may take, like corticosteroids, um, thyroid supplementations, all those can cause um, bone not to bind. And of course, if you have osteoporosis and your bones are um, less dense, makes them weaker and in turn anything can cause a fracture whether they're functional fractures such as stress fractures just from regular activity wear and tear or just from minor injuries that may have not been as bad to cause a fracture but because think those bones are frail and thin um they're just weak and they will not be able to withstand injury drug chest uh, drug class of choice to treat osteoporosis or your bisphosphonates okay so all of those um nates salendronate all those are the first line of treatment for osteoporosis however we need to make sure that the patients before they start them that they are taking them in the morning first thing before eating with an eight ounce of gla- uh, glass of water and that they have to sit up for 30 minutes so they have to be able to sit up because these medications have a risk factor of esophageal ulcers and esophagitis. So we don't want them to lay down um, because that could kind of uh, precipitate. Like we talked in GI, when you lay down, that acidity goes up and it's just kind of make it worse. So the patient is unable to sit up for 30 minutes, then obviously this wouldn't be the drug of choice for them. Um, we talked about that. Um, okay, pressure ulcers. So we said it depends on the intensity of the pressure, the duration, and how, um, how much the tissue can tolerate this pressure. So obviously the older, more frail, or um, patients that are really sick, they're not going to be able to withstand that pressure the way that maybe somebody who's young, healthy, and active, and maybe just have some immobility at this time. So they're going to be at higher risk for pressure ulcer formation um again contributing factors the shearing force so we said the time that the skin um kind of rubs on its um on another surface it's just going to cause that shear um on those layers or maybe the friction let's say on like the heels or the sacrum um those bony prominences and then moisture so if they're incontinent um or they have they're not being changed um often enough or um where they're staying that moisture that skin becomes macerated and um, it's just more likely to tear um than some dry and intact skin okay so be able to identify the staging of them what are key characteristics of those pressure ulcers um so for instance if you notice sloth and eschar you know it's gone beyond um that top layer of skin so um, we know that in order to be able to truly stage that, we need to remove all that. So that stuff is a yellowish um, dead cells that form and that scar is that, um, that scab that forms in that area. So that could cover and really not allow us to see how far it goes in. It may look more superficial, um, but once we remove that, it can be um, further in. Okay, so your stage one, um, we said is superficial, so it's only in the top layer of skin. Um, in fair colored um, patients, it may look red. The area, if you try to press on it, it does not blanch, which means it doesn't change to white and then back to red. However, even if we're looking at patients that maybe have a darker skin color where maybe the redness wouldn't be visible, Um, it will be different than the surrounding area. So maybe more like a bluish purple. And then if you touch it, it may feel boggy, which is like um, bouncy and like rubbery. Um, And that would tell us that there's something different about the surrounding area. Your stage two. So we said now we're going a little bit further in. So it's a partial thickness, but just the epidermis and the dermis. There may be some little ulcerations that form like little vesicles, um, there may be, it looks like kind of like a sunburn when it peels. Um, it's just a top layer though. Now you're stage three. We're going to that um, full thickness. So we're going into that subcutaneous tissue. Um, we are, will not see, there will be no muscle, no bone, no tendon exposure, but it will go into that fatty um, area. Um, it may look like a crater or it may be wider. Um, and there may be some necrotic tissue some some dead tissue um that may be building up there because now you've going you're going further in and then your stage four it's full thickness so now it's going right into it um once it gets to breed and you're fully able to stage it there may be some bone that's exposed muscles tendons obviously these are pretty um severe they could be very painful to the patients um, and obviously these patients are in super high risk for infection because now you have like all this exposed tissue and ways for bacteria to enter. Shh. So whenever you have a patient that comes in that could be at risk for pressure ulcer because there's issues with immobility, um, we would be doing um conducting a braden scale. So that's going to tell us how high Phoebe, shh, how high of a risk the patient is to have the skin breakdown occurring. So the lower the score, the higher the risk. The highest the score, the lower the risk. Um, the most important way that we're preventing developmental pressure ulcers is moving patients. So that frequent mobilization of patients, turning them every two hours, so we're not allowing that pressure to be extended time. So that tissue is not um, constantly being um, uh exposed to this pressure and all this stuff so by frequently moving you're not allowing any one area um to be um, exposed um to that increased pressure um displaced fracture so we said separation um whether it's a complete separation or the comminuted fracture whether you have a bunch of little pieces um all that is just a complete break in the bone. I thought I had to put these in order. sorry, risk factors for osteoporosis over sixty five I said slim, sedentary, smoker, um increased alcohol use um and family history. so if you have a first degree relative, your mom, your sister um your aunt, you're at higher risk um for it. And long-term use of corticosteroids or thyroid replacements also put you at high risk. Um, osteoporosis, we see that change that um, you know the patient maybe, um, that lowering of height, and that's because you start to lose that density of bones, so it starts to thin out. Um, and come together. So you have that cervical um, lordosis where there's a curve along the cervical spine or that kyphosis, which is that curvature that goes forward. Um, and you will see that uh, more prominent in patients that have advanced osteoporosis. Um, we talked about this every two hours. Um, with amputations, the stumps, um, remember we have to wrap them in those figure eights Distal to proximal in order to prevent edema because that edema um if it forms um it's considered a complication because it's gonna delay the healing. So this excess fluid buildup is not gonna allow the tissue to heal um as it should um when it's not occurring. Just like that. Complications of immobility. So, we know that respiratory wise, there could be atelectasis or pneumonia because that fluid is just kind of sitting there, becomes like kind of like stagnant water, um, and it just becomes like um, infected. But we also have risks for constipation, for pressure ulcers, for contractures if we're not moving um, that patient um, regularly. then I mentioned that patients with amputations, we in addition to providing them with medical support as far as healing and um, getting them fitted for their prosthesis and rehab so they get to their maximum potential um, that they can get, um, we also need to take care of their psychosocial so we know that um, any kind of amputation um, is going to be an issue for um, altered body image right so um if we have this altered body image there's going to be psychosocial issues that can go anxiety depression um and all kinds of stuff so in addition to medical we also need to support them um, support groups counseling etc um said wrapping of uh, a fresh amputation we got that figure eight and that's really going to kind of support um, that stump from staying round and um, properly fitted um, so when the patient goes on um, when they're fully healed and they're getting fitted for the prosthesis it fits nicely it's like this little um, round area I compared it to a hot dog because it's kind of like the best visual that you can probably get it's that end of it um, and it'll fit perfectly into the prosthesis okay any questions Um, Melanie, I know you came in um, later. Um, I am recording the session. I will send it out for you guys to have. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, Any questions? No, thank you. Okay, so if you guys, as you're studying, if you have any questions on material that maybe you need to be clarified, um, send me a message. Um, Melanie, I did mention um, there will be two med math, regular, you know, what... You know, oral meds, like what you have at hand and what you have to give. Um, I did send out some med math, but it's not necessarily for me. It's um, to support you guys as you guys are doing your med math for clinicals and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. Where did you send them through email? I send them through reminds, but I believe I send them via email too. They're okay. like PDFs.